By the way, apologies for downplaying the number of pages. If you said yes, uh, you get plus five points. So. I forgot to answer that question. <laughs> so, well, I'll answer it now. You can answer it now. If you read, if you read it, you get an extra five points because it was a harder, it was a longer section, and I tried to be a little easier, but I know that these questions aren't always easy. So. How does Adams recommend preachers take on the obstacle of excuse-making from the congregation? A, forget about it. Those who are going to obey will obey, and those who are going to make excuses are going to make excuses. That's called an excuse. <laughs> Fret about it. Worry about who's going to make excuses and who's going to obey. Confront it. Be aware of, of at which points excuse-makers will bail out of sermons and have a counterplan ready to meet them, or excuse it. People will be people. C. C, yeah. Um, Number two, true or false, biblical discipline is an unhelpful and dangerous thing to encourage people to develop because it makes them trust in their own strength rather than God's strength. False. false. That's a tricky one. I wonder if anybody got said true, but that, that is false. Yeah. He does make a big point about discipline. <clears throat> what does Adams identify as the precondition of a believer making changes that will have to do with overcoming sin? Repentance, repentance yeah. Repentance, Lord's Supper, passion, excitement, definitely repentance. Who decides how a passage is applied? Is it God, the preacher, the congregation, or the internet? It is God, yes? I like that section. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. True or false, you don't need to tell people how to do something, only to do it. God will teach them how. Another false. Bonus, in chapter 19, Adam says that many people will write about application, but few write about it. A very important aspect of application starts with an I. Implementation, how to apply it. Yeah, and if you said implementation, that's another plus five. Implication is close enough, right? Implication, no. Not for a bonus. Not for a bonus. It's got to be right. Implementation. I'm sorry, plus four, not plus five. Nah, who cares? Plus five. Why not? I'm giving away points. I'm giving points away. Everybody gets, well, you get points and you get points. Is it a possible six? Is that what it is? It's like uh, it's like out of twenty points, there there are four points apiece, and then I give you Everything plus ten. Correct, except for one question. Then it's twenty six out of twenty. If you got the bonus, did you get the bonus? He got the bonus. But he missed. The question he is four missed, points. He missed number four. That's that four. that that's up. That's up four points. Yeah, four four points per because there's five questions. There's twenty points, so it's five. It's four points per question. And five points for the reading, five points for the bottom. So it's an extra 10 points if you get both of those right. So it's 26 out of 20. I know. I'm sorry. I had a teacher one time who, who this is how you graded his quizzes. He said, all right, you either, you either pick the evens or the odds. And whichever one you got more, you got better. So if you, like, missed one, three, five, and seven, you still could get 100%. No, you still could get 100% because you got two, four, six, and eight right. It was crazy. Yeah. That's nice. It was, actually, it was kind of nice, but I, I don't know why it was that way. It may have been that way on purpose for some reason. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. All right. Any questions about the reading? Any questions about the reading? Is he actually a pastor? He is. He's a pastor. He's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, of all places. Yeah, he was. He died recently. Uh, he died, I think, this past year. Who, Adams? Jay Adams, yeah. He oh, just died. Oh, so he must have moved because he was in Escondido when he wrote this book. Yeah, he was, he was in Greenville um, at one point. I don't know if he still is there or not. So 
chapter 17, was this, what did we do today? 17, 18? 17, 18, 19, something like that? Um, I had a few, I had a few comments. Um, lectures. Uh, I wrote them here, so I'll just pull them up. Um, it's a long document. Okay, come on. Get to the bottom. Okay, here we go. Okay, okay so 17. Uh, Adams details some of the barriers to good communication. Um, he had excuse making. I love this. Excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I thought that was really good. I don't know if you are, are excuse makers, but if you're an excuse maker, you need to get out of that habit really fast because you won't go very far in life being an excuse maker. You can't go a lot further if you'll just deal with it. So lack of discipline. Uh, he says they lack order, method, regularity, planning, and scheduling ability, perseverance, and or commitment. Um, I think this is getting worse. It seems in our culture today, people have less and less discipline because we get more and more tied to our phones and the instant hits that we get from opening our phones or watching TV. Um, just sticking something out and dealing with it is very hard for a lot of people to do. The presence of complicating problems. Sometimes you'll need to deal with the presence of these complicating problems before you can truly address the real problems. So uh, he mentions that in Failure to Repent. Um, he gives these 10 principles, which I thought were amazing. I shared them with our pastoral staff this past week. Um, when seeking to bring, bring about change, never attempt to do so in the abstract. People only change in concrete ways. This is why I keep hammering away specific, being specific in your FCF, being specific in your application, which we haven't talked as much about yet. But I try to be specific. I again, I understand that I'm not holding myself up as some sort of standard for preacher. I try very hard and do the best I can. But obviously, you could, you could poke holes in my preaching all day long if you wanted to. So these are great principles. And I, I bet Adams was the same way, by the way. None of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. And we all aren't, don't live up to the ideals we set for ourselves. But you, you shoot for something so that you can try to get there. Always give hope. People will not persevere during an often difficult process of change without hope. So don't just beat people down. This is a temptation that younger preachers, especially young men, have. Is to be, is to like be harsh, and talk about how much sin is in your heart, and and rail on people, but not give much hope for change. Um, never minimize the severity of problems. Instead, maximize Christ and His power to solve problems. You ever somebody tell you that they have a huge, huge problem, and then they tell you, and you kind of laugh to yourself, like that's not a big deal. Don't ever do that. It's it's a big deal to them. Okay, everyone has problems that if you were to tell me your problem, I may be like, oh, come on. If I may tell you my problem, you would be like, come on, are you serious? So we all have, the, so don't minimize problems. If a person has a life-dominating problem, aim at total restructuring. So if they are alcoholic or if they are a drug addict or if they are involved in, in massive problems that are dominating their life, you may need to help them actually restructure everything about their life from their job to the way they do to the way they do everything, because it often is all interconnected. Always approach seemingly hopeless situations with emphatic disagreement. That was interesting. Yeah. Empathy alone removes all possibility of help. Disagree when a counselor says it's hopeless. Say it's difficult, but not too difficult for God. What he's saying is people sometimes will say, I'll never be able to do this, and people are like, you know what, you know, um, or 
Yeah, people, people are afraid that they're, people, when people are in fragile states, they're afraid to confront them. And what he's saying is, is that never allow untruth to stand is the point. So this is more of a counseling kind of tip. If you're ever talking to someone and they're saying something that's untrue and they're in a crisis, don't allow that untruth to hang there as if it's true. You need to make sure they understand, like not like beat them over the head, but same thing's true with preaching. You don't ever want people to, to, um, to allow those bad, wrong thoughts. Did you want to say something, Wendy, about that? You look like you were... Oh, no, I was just... I was... You look like you were going to say something. I didn't want to take that away oh. from you. Don't become oriented toward people's problems, but toward God's solutions, okay? This has to do with uh, the FCF being a means to a prop- proposition or, or a theme, not the FCF on its own. You don't want to leave people hanging. Like, yeah, you're, you're bent towards sin. Good luck with that. Um, gauge how much change is now feasible. Too little is boring, too much is discouraging. Sometimes you just need to give people something that they can see and they can do. It's like, do this this week. Other times it's like, if you just say something simple, it's like, well, that's easy. I can do that you know, on my way home. Don't let people settle for less than the scriptural solution. Use biblical or biblically derived language when analyzing or labeling problems and when planning solutions to them. Number nine is huge. Use biblical or biblically derived language. Okay? People, people are bad about this. They say things like, I'm an enabler. Okay, where is that in the Bible? Now, it might be true, but if you're going to help someone change or if you're going to deal with a problem, you need to deal with it in biblical language. Uh, what are a couple other words? I was, alcoholic is one people use. I just used it a minute ago, but drunkard might be a better word. Okay? Alcoholic sounds like it's a disease that you can't control. That's your identity. Our identity is not in our disease or in our inability to control a, a temptation. Our identity is in Christ, period. So when I have a Christian who comes into my office and talks about being an alcoholic and going to AA, we have conversations, and eventually I talk to them, maybe not right away, about you need to consider why your identity is in that. Because so, that's, un- that's unhelpful. Use biblically derived language so that you have biblical solutions. And be commandment-oriented rather than feeling-oriented. You know, I try never to say, I felt like this was true. I say, I believe this is true. Because I don't like using feeling. I don't like to say, I feel that. I feel that the best way to do this, I don't like saying that personally. And let me ask you, or encourage you to excise that language from your, or that vocabulary from your language as well. So when we say, I feel the best thing to do today is, it'd be better to say, I believe, or I think. Or, okay. or, or I'm talking about, even in, con, even in casual conversation, I hate using that kind of language. It, I mean, if you use it, I'm not going to be like, stop! <laughs> you know, I'm not going to jump on top of you and, uh, and, and you know, make a problem or make it an issue. However, um, in my own language, I, I try very hard. I used to say that all the time. And I realized, I was like, that's just not biblical. It, it, it feeds into a feelings-oriented, feelings-centered lifestyle. And so I was trying to be biblical in how I think. Uh, open your notebooks. Let's talk about, um, we're going to get to your homework in a minute. But uh, we have a section called Preaching the Passage, Identifying the Audience God Intended. Um, I think if you have the old notes, it's on page 41. Um, It's not on page 41 in these notes. But it looks like that. 
Okay, most of these notes, there's no, not a lot of places for you to, um, like, to write in blanks or anything. It's in unit two. I have to go back a little bit. Do you find it, Kevin? Not yet? Not yet, no. Um, I could let you borrow my copy. Yeah, I mean, it's all messed up because I... Here, just pass this to Kevin. This is out of my... Wait, hold on. I have one in the student notebook. Do you have a... Well, yeah, you're going to have multiple 40. It's after, the, it's after this thing. It has the, the arrows with the lines on it. So it's towards the back. And if you don't have it, you can just take mine and read it. Because is that it? You find it? Is that it? Perfect. Everybody got it? Yeah, three forty ones, I tell you. You have special edition notebooks, guys. You have collector's editions. Um, okay, um, so this you'll notice the footnote at the bottom. This chapter is modified from chapter 19 of Robertson McQuilkin's book, Understanding and Applying the Bible. I originally taught this lesson as part of my hermeneutics class in 2017. Um, and I decided to use it in this class as well. Now, what I did was I actually rewrote his chapter in a sense because I thought his chapter was, was kind of a mess. But this is basically what he was going for. So my guideline is this. Every teaching of Scripture is to be received universally unless the Bible itself limits the audience, either in the context of the passage itself or in other biblical teaching. So in our model of here's what it says, what it means, and what it means to me, when there's something that's taught and we're trying to figure out what it means and further what it means to me, we have to come through the, and ask ourselves, okay, how much of this and what element of this is actually applicable to me in 21st century America? Because there are certain things that are applicable. There are certain things that are not. And we'll get into some of those details here. Um, and this is abused. Because what I'm asking is that what I'm asking you all to do is basically start with the presupposition, with the assumption that all of it applies unless God tells us it doesn't. Okay, so we're going to talk about legitimate and illegitimate reasons for limiting your audience. So the clearest way we can see this being abused, I put in your notes, and basically I'm just going to read a lot of this to you, is in the modern hermeneutics, uh, is the way secular readers or liberal Christians read into the scripture a tolerance for homosexual behaviors. This was really popular. This was right after Burgerfell was, uh, when, I, when we did this, it was all in the news. You can see it even now, it's gone further. You cannot find the Bible friendly to homosexual behavior unless you limit the intended audience of a command. Uh, a command was given to. So unless you, unless you limit the audience, you're not going to be able to find... So that's what they'll say. Oh, that wasn't written to us. Or that doesn't apply to us is often how it's constructed. Okay. So how do you decide how something applies? So here's some illegitimate reasons for limiting the audience. These are bad reasons. Illegitimate means bad, in case, in case you don't know that. So basically, these are, reasons, these are not reasons we should ever use. Do you have... Do you have everybody has a copy? Okay. I'm just making sure. Number one, reading modern culture anachronistically back into the scripture. What does that mean? What does anachronistic mean? Remember what that word means? I've used it before. It means that you're taking something out of its time. Anachronos. Chronos is time. Anachronistically, it means that you're taking something through a modern audience's eyes and you're reading it back into the scripture. 
So if you take a, a you know modern, uh, let's see here, it says in the New Testament that Stephen was stoned. What does that mean? Did he do drugs? He was at a rock concert. He was at a rock he concert, a, and he, he went to a who concert. Yeah. yeah. No, a rock concert. They threw stones. Oh, ra rock concert. Get it? That was good. Um, so if he if he get if you say Stephen was stoned. If you're reading it with a modern lens, you would say, well, he might have been high after smoking some dope. But we know that that's not at all what it's saying. It's saying that he was killed by people throwing gigantic boulders on top of his head. Okay, completely different meaning. And so we can't read, uh, and, and that, of course, is a silly example, but there are all kinds of um, examples of this when people read things anachronistically. Um, Today, that is happening with the way people are trying to interpret Title IX, even in, our, even in our law. Title IX is a law that says that there can be no discrimination based on sex within college programs. And so what some, cons- some arguments have been made, and even one um, some supposed to be conservative Supreme Court justice made a stupid argument as well, is that um, that sex... At the time, of course, it meant just male or female. But now they're saying it means sexual identity. So if I present myself as a female, you have to take that. You can't make a discrimination based on sex because that would be a discrimination based on sex. Further, Neil Gorsuch made the point that uh, you can't prohibit cross-dressing because you wouldn't, because that would be discriminating based on sex. Because you don't, I wouldn't be mad. I would let Drew come here to work in pants, and I would let Grace come in a skirt. But I would not let Drew come in a skirt. Because that's discrimination. Because I would let a female come in a skirt, but not a male. You see the, the twisted nature of if you just change, you're reading a modern, crazy modern idea back into a text that was never intended. So here, we cannot look at the Bible through the eyes of modern audience only. For example, we cannot reread Paul's prohibitions against women speaking authoritatively in church as bendable because our culture is feminist friendly. We can't say, well, that can't be what he was saying. Are you sure? Our authority is God. It's not our culture. Uh, we also can't take modern concepts like homosexual relationships that is comparable to marriage and read that back into Romans' account as something that would have been acceptable. If Paul's talking about a married, married couple, we do, are, in our culture today, two men can be married. Well, I don't believe it's marriage, but two men in the eyes of the law can be married. We can't say that Paul's applications towards married couples should also apply to men. Does that make sense? That's called anachronistic when you're, you're thinking it through our lens. We can't read these ideas back into the biblical text. That's dishonest, okay? Number two, we can't artificially limit the clear intentions of the author. So often interpreters will artificially limit the clear intentions of the author. Unless the author gives reasons for limiting the audience, we would do well to assume it applies to us too. So there are a couple things here. One, there's a universal cultural pattern. So only the Bible, te- only Bible teaching that reflects a universal cultural pattern is normal for all people in all societies. That is, is the idea here. Uh, well, the, the reader is seeking to limit what is applicable in the Bible to that which is seen by all as normative. So this is, a, again, wrong thinking. So don't steal, don't kill. So those are, those are normative. Those, of course, would apply to all people. That's what this person is arguing. But we're discovering that in many cultures, such as in deepest, darkest Africa, there is a practice of muti in the juju ritual where children are killed for the benefit of others. So is, that's not universal cultural pattern. So you can't say do not murder is a universal cultural pattern. Um, again, that's just... Oh, it'd still be wrong, but what I'm saying is you can't, you can't, you can't limit and say, well, we're only, only things that are 
what this, what the point here, the quote in the box there, is, again, the illegitimate argument that the only Bible teaching that we actually believe is applicable to us is that which reflects a universal cultural pattern for all people. And there are specific things, too, that we have to take into account, well, not just... Culture does the same. I guess what I'm saying is, is that you can't, you can't artificially limit it and say the Bible, the only Bible rules that apply are those that are seen, that everyone recognizes are already then the Bible doesn't have authority. Then you're just saying, what does the culture recognize? What does the Bible agree with? Let's keep going. Um, valid culture arguments. Uh, Paul uses a culture argument to support his injunction to work with one's hands. The reason it's given is not some external moral principle, but cultural argument. They were supposed to act in a way that was proper to the outsiders. Oh, keep going. Just don't worry about this. Basically, we are not to take, look at the bottom. We are not to take the words of Scripture and mold them however we would like them to interpret in our culture. We must understand how they apply in our culture, but realize the words of Scripture are authoritative. So we change our, our culture to apply to Scripture. We don't change Scripture to apply to our culture. Number, uh, another number, I forgot which, where we are now. Understanding principles is primary and details is secondary is another illegitimate reason for limiting the audience. Many times people want to believe this to be true because it makes things easier, but it's not the case. Scripture does not demand this be a limiting factor. If principles were the only thing that mattered, we could extrapolate out until the Scripture's authority is completely lost. So, yeah, so like... Um, uh, I was just thinking of one uh, this morning. Um, let's give an example of a very specific. Um, I, I mean, all I can think of is like the um, women speaking in the church kind of a thing. If you say, well, obviously, women are not to preach in the. Uh, well, Paul, Paul here is saying women not to preach in the church. That is probably. Uh, that's a detail that basically is saying that the primary principle at work is that women ought to be subject to the authority of God. So if they're under the authority of a pastor, they can preach in a church. Because he says you're not allowed to speak in a church, but really that's just a detail. The principle is that they should be in the proper authority structure. And then you basically are moving away from the text so much so that you just, you're just removing, you're removing the, yeah, you're kind of interpreting it how, you're basically coming up, here's what happens. People come up with their solution first, and they work backwards. They say, what do I want it to say? And then they try to figure out a way to make it say that. It's unfortunate people do that to the scripture. Not what we want to do. The reason we're talking about this is that there are legitimate reasons, though, for limiting the audience. Let's talk about those for a minute. I don't want to get too caught up in all the illegitimate reasons. Let's talk for a moment here. Context may indicate that there is a limited audience. For example, in Matthew chapter 10. Who is Jesus speaking to? The disciples. Yeah, look, I said there, if you back up to 10.5, you'll notice Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Look at the promise. When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in the hour of what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your holy father, a spirit of your father who speaks in you. Doesn't matter that it's speaking to the disciples and not to us directly. Why? Could that be directed to us, so as as we think? How would you apply that? Well, if if the time comes, I need to speak the truth. The Holy Spirit will speak for me. I'm not saying this passage goes straight to us, mm -hmm. but I mean, there's times I've speak and I don't I said things I don't even know, but the Holy Spirit's just telling right. me what. And I'm like, where did that come from? But it's just coming through. Okay, so is this a promise? Uh, the reason I brought this up is I, I, when I said I was going to seminary, I had a friend who was a Christian who said, you shouldn't go to seminary. 
why are you going to study? I said, because I need to know what the Bible says. I need to be able to study so I can preach. He said, you don't need to do that. Look at this verse. The Bible says you just open your mouth and God will fill it. You don't need to worry about, you don't need to worry about what you're going to say when the time comes. He, he says to put my word in your heart and study it. Right. So there, And eat it every day. Ezekiel would eat the scroll. Right. So. I mean, yes, there are lots of other reasons but, but, uh, for, for saying that. But I, I think the point here is that the, this is talking specifically about the disciples when they go through persecution. What should they expect? And there are some implications for us today, but I don't think the implications are quite that you don't have to worry about what you're going to say, that the, the Holy Spirit promises to fill your mouth, you Christian, Joe Q Christian, whenever you open it or whatever. I think it's, it, I think it's pretty specific. I think it, these, if you read the context, it seems like Jesus is giving a very specific um, promise to a very specific group. Now, I could be wrong, and there might be a broader implication there. No, I but see, it's, he's literally promising them, basically, you guys will all be killed very shortly. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to make it five years, probably. So, Right. It's a little different than the situation we find ourselves yeah. in. It's, it's not a, a legitimate for me to say, oh, I don't have to go to seminary. I'll just, this Father promises through the Spirit to speak through me, so I'll just stand up there and say whatever I want to say, and it's of God. No. You, you, see how that, you see how that could be dangerous? Yeah, you could say one thing and another person using the same authority could be saying something else. Absolutely. Do you still um, one or both of you yeah. representing God? Are you still in contact with that guy that told you that? I know. Like how's it working out with yeah. <laughs> Well he he's not a pa- he's not a oh. pastor, no. He 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 didn't uh he's not in ministry. Um but he claims to be a believer. And he, he was an immature Christian, too. I mean, he read this, and he just thought that's what it meant. I think also, um, uh, I mean, you're right. The, 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 the apostles were the ones who were filled by the Spirit to write inspired Scripture as well. And so I think that might also be what he's talking about in some respects. Did, did he also pick up poisonous snakes? And- oh, I don't know. <laughs> very possibly. Very yeah, possibly. I mean, Sometimes the audience... Yeah, sometimes the context is, you just look at the context and it seems like, well, this isn't really talking to me, it's talking to a specific group about a specific problem. Uh, and that might have implications for me, but it might not, in all its details, apply to me. Sometimes the audience is actually designated by the author, so it's important to determine from the context, not from one's theological, cultural, personal preference, the author's intended audience. So, you know, is he speaking to all Christians or, or non-Christians? Is he speaking to first century Christians or me, too? Is he designating this to Old Testament Jews or New Testament Christians? That that can be different. And and in the context, it will often tell you. That's kind of tricky with the letters, isn't it? Because obviously the letters were written to specific people. Uh, sometimes. So Paul's letters are normally written to specific people. So his letters to churches, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and his letters to people, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And then you have the general epistles like Hebrews, James, and 1st, 2nd Peter, Jude, which are written to Christians broadly. They're called general Catholic epistles because they're written to the whole church. They weren't written, like First Peter was not written to a specific church. It was written to a collection of Christians in this region. So, um, yeah, sometimes like Paul's addressing specific issues within the church at Corinth that gives us a pattern for how we ought to handle things. But there might also have been details about that that we're not privy to. Um, 
and there's a million examples, but I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. Just the main thing is be aware that sometimes the audience is limited by the author himself. Also, we need to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive history. The Bible gives us accurate representations of historical events. However, this does not mean that every event present in Scripture is normative for us. That means it's not to be done. For example, here's a couple of gross examples. I'm very sorry. It happened the next day, the first word said to the younger, these are Lot's daughters. I, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight. Also, you go and lie with him that we may preserve our lineage of our father. Is this teaching people how to preserve their lineage? No. Yes, ma'am. Um, when I was newly saved, just being an immature believer, I just assumed everything in the Bible was God's will. So I like was really tripped up over like most of the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. How is this right? How These is this people right? are twisted, yeah. The point being is that God uses even these very, very flawed individuals, like yeah. even things like polygamy. So that was not God's design. In fact, there's a, there's a, you know, um, there's a lot of disobedience that happens in Scripture. Yeah. People disobeying God, doing, d- doing what God says don't do. Um, yeah, David even with his many wives. Deuteronomy talks about men, uh, kings are not to accumulate to themselves wives. And what does David and Solomon do? They do the opposite. Yes, Charles? Maybe a less obvious prescriptive error uh, in application would be, uh, and I didn't come up with this myself, I, I read a book uh, a, year, a couple of years ago that outlined some of these, would be those who read in the scripture where uh, parents arranged marriages yeah. between their, their children. <clears throat> And so because that was the biblical way of doing things back then, many of these people, probably some Bill Gothard-type folks, yeah. uh, would say, hey, this is the biblical way to do it. Or because, early, <laughs> because early, Christ, early Christians met in houses, therefore, you know, we don't build dedicated churches. Yeah, and I have this, I have this verse also from Acts 2.44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. So you had this small group of believers small group of yeah. who, who basically lived not, they weren't, they weren't communists, just to be clear. They did it, they, yeah, by choice, but, they but they still had, they had, they, they had their property, but they shared all things. Is this, is this telling us how we ought to live as a church? And the answer is no, it's not, de- it's not prescriptive in all things. It's descriptive of how the early church was forming. The prescriptive parts of Scripture, uh, like how we are to do the church, are outlined for us in the letters. That's why we have the letters. Yes, sir? Interestingly, in following Marx and Engels' uh, Communist Manifesto, there were late 19th century Christians who read into that passage we just said it's not communism and they said well yeah the christians practiced that Mm -hmm. yeah so they were they stumbled (laughs) yeah and so that's why you have to be very careful marks and angles yeah and there were lots of problems with marks and angles obviously i mean we could that's another whole topic but the idea being that because the scripture tells us what happened does not mean that we should necessarily do what they did unless it's Unless it's prescriptive. So there's prescriptive, which is telling us what to do, and there's descriptive, which is telling us what happened. We have to be careful to discern between those, especially in narrative portions. So um, anyway, so narrative or historical events, I, I mentioned here, any specific behavior should not be considered normative for today solely on the basis it's recorded in the Bible. It must be evaluated in light of direct biblical teaching. 
Also, teaching directed to a specific individual or group. Matthew 21. Go to the village opposite you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose him and bring it to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of him. Immediately he will send them. So, Charles, I want you to obey this verse. I want you to go to the next town. I want you to, to buy that, to get that Mustang, that colt that's tied up at that, uh, at that, uh, at that uh, place over there. On, you know, I want you to bring it over here. And if they say, what are you doing? You're going to say, well, the Lord has need of him. And, and the Lord's going to use that Mustang here at Harvest Baptist Church. And you're going to obey Matthew 21, 2 and 3. Um, by doing that, okay. Well, I think the Lord really have a poor <laughs> he might, he might. But you see how that was a specific command to a specific group of people for a specific purpose in a specific time, and we can draw implications from that. They obeyed the Christ, they obeyed Christ, and in doing that, they, you know, that was part of God's plan, so He could ride in on the donkey. But we're not to take from that that we ought to go and grab donkeys off random posts and bring them to ourselves. Um, one another with a holy kiss. Yeah, that's one that um, I actually I actually do believe is is somewhat prescriptive because it is a command, and I think that's part of the problem with COVID stuff. To be, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of peeling back some of the I'm getting my, my might get myself in danger here. Okay, um, when this first thing happened, uh, people were like, "Oh, social distance, social distance." I said, "Okay, that's we can do that until we figure out what's going on." But social distancing is not a way to run a church, and it's not a way to do ministry because the biblical role of ministry is close contact. Always. And you think they didn't have viruses and diseases back then? Of course they did. And, and God knows that. And I'm not saying we're going around and like hugging on each other all the time, but, and there has to be discretion. You can't be like, uh, a man yeah, you should not be doing things that create problems between, you know, lust of the flesh or whatever. However, there is close contact. And even in the scripture here, the, script, the command is greet one another with a holy kiss, meaning that there is a close contact among the church brothers and sisters. So um, I shared that verse multiple times with people and, and they always would laugh. I say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of serious here that I think that there is a, there is an, uh, today our version of that is handshaking and greeting. Okay. Yeah. Some people said that, okay, that doesn't count for today because we don't go around literally kissing each other. And my corrective to that was no, but we greet one another with our custom. Uh, yes, with our custom. Yeah. Like shaking hands. Or, yeah. You know, so when I was in Hawaii, when I was in Hawaii on the mission trip, I was uh, on the pulpit, or on the pulpit, in the pulpit, on the stage, uh, getting ready to preach, and they uh, welcomed me to Hawaii. The pastor and his, and his family did, and his daughter, who's like 17, comes up, gives me a lay, puts a lay over my, over my head, gives me a kiss on both cheeks. I turn about seven shades of red. <laughs> Because there's this Hawaiian girl giving me a kiss in front of all these people. I'm like, my wife's down there. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, it is extremely distracting. It would be very awkward in our culture today for us to go around kissing each other on the cheek. It's not how we do things. But we do, we do have customary greetings, and they are involving touch. And so that's appropriate. And, and sometimes I will, you know, in the South especially, there's a hug sometimes, and I'll, I'll do a, uh, it's called the awkward side hug, so as not to cause any kind of um, problems with any females but uh or against my own character so um but you know there is so that's a great example of adapting that to the custom of the time now our custom today uh, as a way of being consistent in the case where distinction is difficult to make in the interest of maintaining the independent authority of scripture we should assume the normative nature of the teaching rather than dispensing with it too easily i like that we should be careful about just saying oh that's just not important 
Um, history and culture sometimes uh, gives us information here. Culture is all human language, behavior, morals, values, and ways of doing things in any particular group of people. So uninterrupted or unevaluated cultural elements have no more normative power have no more normative power than uninterpreted historical events. I'm reading this too fast. I'm sorry. I'm bumbling all over this. But basically, culture is always being evaluated and critiqued by the teaching of Scripture. You have to remember that. You can't say, just because it's our culture, it's okay. Uh, there's a lot of nasty culture out there. I mean, exact, that's the point I'm making. So the Scripture... Teachings are not often aimed at history. True historical events are often demonstrated by the act of God, but Revelation simply records the setting, whereas most biblical teaching is aimed at culture for human behavior is the object of Revelation, meaning that that the teaching is critiquing culture. Titus, he critiques the culture of Crete and says, you guys are a bunch of evil, lazy gluttons. That was their cultural heritage. And he says, you guys are being gluttonous and... Whatever. So it's, it's appropriate to critique culture. Uh, subsequent revelations. So not all Old Testament scriptures apply to the New Testament believer. So it's dangerous to set aside Old Testament teaching without clear teaching from the New Testament. So we have circumcision, a big deal. So in Galatians, Paul not only disallowed circumcision as a necessary sign of covenant relationship with God, but the entire system along with circumcision seems to have been set aside. That's a, be, be aware of that. And then modification. Obviously, Matthew 5, Jesus says... It's not just adultery, it's lust, etc. So here's an example of application from a text. We get to put it into play, okay? Who wants to read 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16? Pat. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Goliath? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay. So, what is said or what is meant? The immediate application of Paul to the Corinthians is that they are not to connect themselves in partnership with unbelievers. Specifically, it was dealing with the fact they were discounting Paul's work of the Spirit. Instead, they were becoming enamored with the worldly thinking of those opposed to the gospel message. So that's what it said. That's here. Okay, here's what it means. Those who follow the Lord cannot partner with unbelievers in a close way because we're not going in the same direction. In general terms, you can't partner with those who do not follow God at the same time, effectively following him. You can't partner yourself with someone who's opposed to God and follow God at the same time. Do not be unequally yoked. The idea of a yoke, you know what a yoke is? It's like an oxen have this thing that, that goes over both their shoulders. There are two of them. They're going together. And if they're unequally yoked, you got one stronger than the other. And they end up going offline because you have to be equally yoked. They have to be the same strength of oxen to go together, to go straight. So what does it mean for me right here, right now? Look at this application. Although he isn't speaking about marriage. It would be completely appropriate to teach that someone who's looking to marry someone who's not a believer will be violating this scripture. Okay? We often use that phrase, you should not be unequally yoked. Don't marry an unbeliever. But if you look at the context of this passage, he's not talking about marriage. He's not. But we use that language so often that when you read this passage, your mind might automatically go to marriage. But he's not talking about marriage. 
we apply it because that is a very valid, valid um, application because what other close partnership can you think of that's going to be that close to the marriage? I mean, closer than marriage? Or yeah. I mean, I mean, basically, that's what I'm saying is there's really not much else. There's marriage is the closest. You're one flesh. And um, so here, it would be completely appropriate to teach someone who's looking to marry someone who's not a believer. They would be violating the scripture. The partnership of marriage is a very close relationship. Closer, I should say, not maybe, but closer than any partnership in your life. Therefore, you may apply this text directly to a young person who's trying to decide who they want to marry. It would be appropriate for you, I, I get to this point here, to say that the value of understanding this concept is that you take your text and you, you can see how it applies in multiple areas of life. Not just in the very, very, very specific area to which it says. There are universal principles which then, if you understand them properly, can be applied into the life of an individual in the modern world. How to deal with cell phones. How to deal with social media. I don't see Facebook anywhere in the Bible. So how do you deal with social media? You could make the argument, well, Paul, when he talks about let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, he's just talking about that which comes out of your mouth. He's not talking about that which comes out of your keyboard. That would be artificially limiting the application. I think it has everything to do with what comes out of your keyboard, what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your heart. Okay, does that make sense? You kind of see where I'm going here with the application stuff? Anybody have any questions? That's basically the end of this little section. I wanted to make sure that you guys got uh, that before we went any further. I really should have covered that earlier. Any, any, any problems or questions? We've still got about 10 minutes, so don't give up yet, Brian. Unless, do you have to go somewhere? Okay, good. Good. Okay. Now, homiletical outlines. How'd it go? How'd it go? Good, bad, ugly? We did it. The question is, did we do it right? Well, that's okay. And, and I, I'm not going to have the time to, to have everybody review it in class. I will look at it myself and give you some feedback. Um, the... The main idea is probably what a lot of you will have to do is you'll have to be a little briefer. If, if, any, if history is past this prologue, if, I, if, I, if I've been around and I've seen homiletical outlines from young people before or from older people before, from people who, aren't, who don't preach a whole lot, um, typically you want to be a little shorter than you are. Typically. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. I could be. I haven't looked at them yet. Yes, sir. Well, mine's. Long, obviously, you've seen it. Yeah, I, ha I haven't, actually. I haven't seen yours. You want to look at yours? Oh, it was two pages. <laughs> I know I printed it, but I haven't yeah. taken a look at it. Two full pages. But um, I was, again, going on the, what I read someplace in here. It's really hard sometimes to find out where I read yeah. it. I need to put little sticky notes in here. I guess I can find more tabs. But um, that it was built on our exegetical. Yep. Yep, it is. It is. And, and, and so I just uh, just expanded the thoughts. I changed it from exegetical wording to yep. uh, we and you. That yep, sort of good. Personalized it. But as I was doing it, I was thinking, does Pastor Fant believe, or is he saying that the, the great outline that we get on Sunday morning and Sunday night, is, is that the homiletic outline? 
I, I didn't think so because I, I'm thinking you've got a lot more. Yeah. So you you get the skeleton. You get it's a homiletical outline, but you get the skeleton of right. it. Yeah. Uh, that is basically a homiletical, homiletical outline. That's not, the homo, that's not what I would take into the pulpit with me. Boy, I wish I could take just a single sheet of paper in the pulpit with me, but I don't, I don't, it's not locked in my head enough for me to do that. I don't feel as comfortable. I feel much more comfortable having, knowing where I'm going, having beat, you know. Little. But, but he, here's, here's what I want you to think about, is that the exegetical outline acts as a blueprint and a structure. It acts as almost like the footings and the foundation which, which holds your structure together, and even, even the framework, framing of your, of your house, if you think of it this way. Whereas your homiletical outline, the one that you're going to speak from, the one you're going to preach from, has to be much more brief. So John's source of truth is declarations, his purpose for his epistle. Um, that's the introduction. That's the introduction. So let's go to this here. That's where it really starts. Yeah. yeah. So you say, it is God's perfect holy character that demands perfect righteousness. Though we as believers have been declared righteous through faith in Christ's shed blood, it is necessary for us to confess our sins, to walk in the light, so we may experience the joy of fellowship with him. We are disqualified from fellowship by denying our sin and walking in darkness. So, so that, is, that, is, yeah, you, that is going to be underneath whatever... You, you, probably, you probably can't have that as a, as a main point because it's, just, it's entirely too... It, it's like everything here just kind of in one... In one thing. So the way to do that... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You're going to ask a question? No, I, I see where you're going. Okay. So the, the way you do that is you have to say, how can I clarify this and make it broad? The issue is, right now, you're, you're extremely like, specific, and you, you nailed it. Like This is exactly what that's about. The problem is, is that, 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 that in order to speak, what would be good is if you could create something that's perhaps a little broader, that encapsulates all these ideas in one sentence... That is, um, and I like to have the structure of because and you must because that way it, yeah. it, it, it gives us the encaps, you know, it gives it to us all. In fact, did you notice on Sunday I gave you guys a very explicit um, propositional theme at the end of my message? Maybe you never noticed it. Okay. Um, but the idea, so I, I guess, I, let me show you, uh, let me see here. Um, let me do a couple things rather than pick on Charles here. Because, um, let me see. Should we also, like, turn the exegetical along with homiletical? No. No, your exegetical outline is important for you to understand what the text is saying. But once you get into the preaching mode, you really want to move beyond your exegetical outline. Use the structure of your exegetical outline. Like, your, your sermon should basically flow using the same divisions as your exegetical outline. But it's not going to use the same language because the exegetical outline is explaining what the text says what you're doing is you're explaining what the text says to me in the congregation so i'm just going to back this up here is this my last yeah so like last week's message this is it here if i go to the outline um that's this week okay so I gave a, da, 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 because you have been saved by God, you must, there are three things you must do. You must prepare yourself. And, and see what I did was I actually deleted. I could have written out, because you have been saved by God, you must, like that. In fact, that's what it looked like in my original 
my original note. But to make it cleaner, I just, I just did prepare yourself. And I put, the, I should have put because you have been, but I, I put it down here. So I, I didn't really. But what does your notes, what do your notes look like? This is my preaching notes here. Okay. So I have prepare yourself. I even put this in because you've been saved by God. Prepare yourself. How? By removing obstacles. And when I write it, I write it in outline format. So it looks like this. By removing obstacles, by getting serious about what lies ahead, and by showing confidence in what God has promised. And here's rest in your hope upon the grace brought to you. Boom, boom, boom. Stand up under pressure. And I even underline that so I know it's an underline for you. By submitting, here's my cross-references. I don't know if you can see that, but it's red. I do my cross-references in red, and I do my scripture in blue, so I know when I have a PowerPoint coming up. Refusing uh, to give in to old desires. And then be holy. Why? Because, see, I put this in because I'm explaining why it is that I, this is more like in my notes, but it's not in the, the one who called you is holy. I didn't put that in there. All our conduct must be holy. Holy conduct is consistent with Scripture. Here's our theme. Because those who are saved belong to God, He calls believers to live out this salvation today. The living out the salvation is what this looks like. I could not come up with an easier... I, I kind of just... I, on Friday, as I was finishing up the outline, I, I was like, this is going to have to be live out your salvation because I can't think of any other way to say prepare yourself, stand up under pressure, and be holy. Like There probably is a better way of saying that, but I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. And so I was out of time, and so I said, you know what, I have to... I was kind of explaining to you guys, I had those three ideas that are my switch, that I switched every single time. And you could write before each one of those, if I wanted to be wordy, I could say, because, how did I say it? Because, um, whatever it was at the beginning here, because you've been saved by God. Because it's all about salvation. Because you've been saved by God, you must prepare yourself. Because you've been saved by God, you must stand under pressure. Because you've been saved by God, you must be holy. I could say that every single time, but I didn't want to be too wordy. So I chopped it, and... And put it there. And, and the problem is, is that this is not a paper. So if you just pick this up and you saw prepare yourself, that could mean anything. But you're, that's, you're also speaking. This is just to help them follow you. So when you give people an outline, you're just giving them kind of an idea of where you're going. Does that kind of make sense a little yeah, bit? I understand that part. Yeah. Just, uh, I guess in, in having a wordy main topic, a main yeah. idea there... Um, I guess I carried that over from the exegetical. Yeah, I can see that. And, uh, and I guess if I were to say all of that, or someone, I'd probably be repeating myself below when I got to the, to the sub point. Yeah, so every point, and I don't know if I've actually explained this completely. I think I'll have, but maybe it bears repeating. Your main point of your homiletical outline, main point, okay, if you have your prop or your thesis here, however you want to call that, your propositional statement, this is to prove or to show evidence or whatever of your thesis, right? Or whatever. It's going to, it's going to support that. And under every main point, you should have three things. You should have explanation. You should have illustration. And application. Now, here's the thing. Illustration and application are possibly only going to come in at the end, depending on the kind of sermon you're preaching. If, the, if, you're, um, 
If your switch is your you must, if, if it's exhortation every time, if it's, if it's different every single time, you can illustrate and apply um, every single time because the application of how you live out that, tr that command is different. But if it's one main application with a lot of different truths, you're basically applying the same thing over and over again. So, and your L explanation, I'm gonna, this is where your A, B, and C go, okay? So, generally speaking, when you do an outline, it's one A, B, C, two A, B, C, or A, B, three A, B, C, D, or whatever. You know what I mean by when I'm saying that? Are you, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like so, Roman numeral one, A, B, C, Roman numeral two, A, B, Roman numeral three, A, B, C, whatever. So if you have two divisions under Roman numeral two, three under Roman numeral one, or whatever. This is all explanation. Okay? This is where illustration and application are for your main point. We'll talk about that more in depth next class period, or maybe the next one. I don't know. Um, but as you, yes, do you have three main points then? Do you have Roman numeral one, two, and three? If, if you, have, I'm saying, if you have three main points, if you if you have three points, or if you have two points, I had three points in my message, one, two, and three, and I spend the time explaining what it's saying, then I kind of illustrate it, then I apply it. Um, you don't want to do application too early because you're applying the main point, right. not your subpoints. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the details later. But your homiletical outline, and this, is, uh, this thing you're handing in, it's not going to be like, I'm not going to give you an F on it, okay? It's like, I want to see you're doing it. I want to see you got the idea. And we'll keep the rest of the time. This is what we're working. This is what we're tweaking, okay? It's not like a final product. And... This is the next step. Once you get this going, you'll be able to actually see your sermon starting to flush out. Does that make sense? I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I won't answer all your questions tonight, I know, because this is like meat and potatoes of really the sermon writing part. Yes, ma'am. So the homiletical outline is not all you would take to go No, 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 no. No, no. So, like, um, if I turned in a homiletical outline, it might look something like that, you know? Where it's like your your main points and my sub points. These are so when we hand out an outline, I do I don't do Roman numerals because I think they're a little bit elitist. I use just regular numbers, and then I don't even do A, B, and C. I just put subs here. I think it looks cleaner. Um, but really, this is one A B C, one A B, two A B C. What I did, right? And but in my and I take in the I take in the pulpit. This it looks like. It looks like that. So here's all my notes, um, including the closing hymn I pick out ahead of time. All my notes. Um, I talk about illustration, moving back to my parents' house. To, you know, here, I put that in a block so I, I remember to talk about, like, you know. Is this what you want our things Not necessarily. I want it to look like how you are comfortable I don't, I don't want you to write out every word necessarily. I, I want you to be able to feel comfortable getting in the pulpit. I, because, it depends. Like, a lot of times bullet, bullet points are fine. We'll, we'll get into that later. I tell you, don't worry about your final, final product yet. That really isn't important. Right now, just focus on the structure and the homiletical outline idea. You don't want to worry about the little details. You'll get, you'll get so caught up in that it'll, it'll drive you crazy at this point. 
Am I, am I giving you too much? Is that okay? All right. So next week, um, let's go back to the thing. Let's look at what we have for next week. And uh, I think we only have you reading one chapter, maybe. Two, Two chapters. Three chapters. Yeah, the rest of the book. Just finish it off. Um, I tell you what. We only. Have, oh boy. Um. Let's do this. Um, let's try your applications and illustrations. Basically, one to three. And what you'll do is just bring them to class. Uh, the idea is, is that if you have, like I mentioned, remember the anchor and the switch, the, the truth and the exhortation. If you have an exhortation repeating itself over and over again, you're going to want to come up with that many, however many exhortations you have, that many applications to deal with each one of those exhortations. Um, illustrations is, is either one per the, for the whole message or one per point. Not one you 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 do an, you do an, uh, oh, I'm so sorry we're late. Um, you do one illustration for the main point. You don't do an illustration for point C of this. You do one, and I do break that rule sometimes. But generally speaking, you want one main illustration, main point. Okay. Any questions? Email me or call me if you have. Some of you have been emailing me and calling me. Thank you for doing that. Good job, Charles. Anything else? <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's a lot that we could. I mean. Illustrations, applications. Illustrations are stories. A little story. Just write a little story. Yes, please. Can I take your homiletical outline with me? Does anybody need to take it back with you? Do you have a, if you don't have another copy of it, I will uh, scan it.